0: Most mornings when I get up, I put on my boots and head down the stairs, along the gravel path, past the pond and to the gate near the back of the shed. Soon, I'm in the back paddock and then into the place where I have always felt most at home. The bush. If we're pedantic, what I'm taking my morning stroll through is technically dry sclerophyll woodland but whether I'm in the Daintree or the Mallee Scrub, the desert or the Tarkine, there is something about this country that just seeps into your bones. We have an ephemeral creek that cuts our property in half. When it's dry, which is most of the time, all the water sinks down into the silt except where it's caught by the sandstone that dips in and out of the landscape like old shards of bone. As a little tot, whenever it rained, I was in the creek, half swimming, half romping through the leaves and the mud. How I didn't get covered in leeches is beyond me. In the very first episode of this podcast, we explored our ancient beginnings in the ocean, our primate past and our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Once upon a time, and not so long ago, humans spent pretty much their whole lives in the wild. I'd like to think that, Children thousands of years ago got to play in creeks just like I did. And while our conscious self tells us that the leather recliner in our climate-controlled living room is the best place to hang out, there's a subconscious animal within all of us that just wants to see a tree. Preferably amongst other trees too. Hello everyone and welcome back, this time on How To Be A Mammal, we head into the great outdoors and explore our amazingly complex, incredibly important and increasingly confusing relationship with the natural environment. In fact, I've uncovered so much on this topic, this has become a two episode attempt to reconnect us with mother nature. We'll also be diving into how to get out and about and why it's so important to leave the air conditioning and disinfectant behind. And we'll have a chat about the Anthropocene with a world-class researcher and academic. My name's David Barnott Clement. Let me show you how to be a mammal. Interacting with and being exposed to nature is incredibly important for our physical, mental and even social health. Research into this area seems to have only scratched the surface. It's been found that earthing, so having physical contact with the earth, regulates our diurnal body rhythms, enhances our physical vitality and lowers blood pressure. It produces many of the same benefits exercising does. Hospital patients who can see natural scenery through their window have shorter recovery times and experience less pain after surgery. Other studies have found we use outdoor spaces more if there's more trees around and that children's activities in green spaces improves their social development. Even the social bonds of a whole community can be enhanced by increasing the amount of green space people have access to. Perhaps one of the most interesting claims when it comes to nature, or at least our interaction with external or dirty environments, is that exposure to pathogens and non-invasive Organic detritus from an early age can reduce your risk of developing allergies. In other words, playing in a park, or in my case the creek, where there would have been all manner of bacteria and viruses, amoebas and pollen and stuff, means you're less likely to get allergies or suffer from asthma later in life. Allergies are funny things. As Bill Bryson dryly notes in his fantastic book, The Body, rates of allergies vary worldwide but are highest in developed countries. There is a lovely irony in the fact that the richer you are, the more likely you are, statistically, to suffer from hay fever. This is known as the Hygiene Hypothesis, and was first proposed by David Strachan in 1989. Arika von Mewchis, a name I have probably just butchered because it's German, and I do apologise if I have, divides this hypothesis into three main claims. The first is that infections, both the ones we notice and those we don't, may potentially reduce the risk of developing allergic illnesses. The second is that non-invasive microbial exposures in the environment may also have the same effect, so if you hold your dog close to your face, there's a whole bunch of microbes on your pooch that could make the dog sick, but not you. That doesn't stop those viruses or bacteria from being wafted up your nose and they will still be removed by the immune system, but they don't cross the species threshold, unlike COVID-19. The last claim is that being exposed to all of these things alters your innate and adaptive immune system, which if you remember, we talked about in episode 1. Now, the hygiene hypothesis is a fair bit more complicated than that, but you get the idea. Essentially, getting dirty, as a kid, isn't necessarily a bad thing, and may actually gear our immune systems in such a way our bodies don't freak out when your mate on the school bus eats a peanut butter sandwich. And that's exactly what an allergic reaction is. Your body's defense mechanisms going into overdrive for no apparent reason. I mean, there's no evolutionary advantage from avoiding peanuts. They're delicious. And there is evidence for these claims. Studies of children growing up on farms, compared to those living just down the road in town, have found that growing up surrounded by animals, the hay sheds, manure, mean farm kids are far less likely to develop allergies that they then bring with them into adulthood. Similar studies have confirmed that protective exposures, as they are called, include animal sheds, haylofts, and the consumption of unpasteurized cow's milk. So, does this mean, as a concerned parent, you should rub your kid's face in the dirt? Well, no, but if they pick up the cat, or go crawling through the garden, don't freak out. Nature is seriously good for us. Luckily, getting out and about, pandemic aside, doesn't have to be the screaming kid, broken tent pole filled nightmare that has scarred most people at one point or another. That said, it seems screaming children are hard to avoid. Mm-hmm. you,
1: I don't know if it's going to be annoying. My, so my housemate actually has a three-year-old daughter. And she's in the middle of a temper tantrum, <laughs> which you may be able to hear.
0: It's COVID nineteen. Um, the show must go on. It's fine. Truly, it's totally cool. This is Amy Farrell, the assistant editor of We Are Explorers, an online publication that lives up to its name. It's all about getting you outside.
1: Um, We mostly just cover domestic travel within Australia, but also cover a fair bit of New Zealand as well, and have kind of spread a little bit out to other islands in the Pacific. Our ethos is pretty much just like to encourage people all across Australia to just get outdoors more often. So we do aim at kind of like the Yopro, so like young professionals who are kind of like working in cities and spend a lot of their time in the city during the week but are really keen to like spend their weekends um, camping, hiking out of the city um, and kind of getting their nature fix. So I guess a big part of our publication is the idea that adventures don't have to be some huge, expensive or like really daring expedition. We, we have these things we call micro-adventures so it can be as short and easy as a two-hour hike um, close to your suburb or something like that. Getting the idea that adventure can happen on any day of the week, even just small doses of adventure and being outdoors kind of can help improve your lifestyle.
0: You mentioned that one of the reasons why you liked the publication was because it aligned with your own values. So obviously you're someone who likes to get outdoor in nature a lot. Why? What is it about the outside that is is so appealing what do you get out of it
1: first and foremost obviously Australia and New Zealand as well are both really beautiful um, places to be outdoors like very unique um, environments and ecosystems and just really gorgeous places to be in and look at and especially Australia so much variety of environments as well so yeah, I mean, you could be in one place and drive a couple of hours down the road and be in a completely different kind of ecosystem, which is really cool. But I think, I don't know, I just, if I find myself stuck inside for longer than a day or two, I feel like quite, um, I don't feel quite myself. I feel a bit like I'm missing something. I feel a bit, even a little bit unhealthy. I don't know. I just being outdoors in the fresh air, I find it very refreshing and kind of healing, I guess. For example, um, over summer, I gave myself a little challenge um, to try and swim every single day. Uh, I'm very fortunate to live very close to the beach. so. But I found that every time, even though I would only like most of the time just jump in the water and jump out, it was kind of like I was washed of all of the day's responsibilities and anything I'd been worried about. Yeah, the ocean just has a very kind of cleansing factor to it, I suppose. I don't know, when you're outside or camping or whatever, you're very much only thinking about the space that you're in and who you're with when you're there, what you're going to do next, like um, what you're going to have for dinner, not thinking very much further ahead than the rest of the day's activities.
0: So you mentioned before your target market is partly the Yopro's, so the young professionals who spend a lot of their time working in those offices in Sydney or wherever it happens to be. Do you think that's part of the reason why you have that reader base? People are looking for the opportunity to kind of take a break from that 24-hour cycle of indoors, in a car, sitting in front of a screen. Is that what they're looking for?
1: (laughs) I mean, I think it's going to change a bit um, with COVID. I think a lot of people will if they're able to work from home, are going to start living in more rural areas and rural cities and places that they can actually access nature and have a more regional lifestyle. Um, but still, like, if they're able to work from home, that kind of changes so many people's living situations.
0: And speaking of COVID-19, what are the what are the numbers like in terms of your, your reader base? What has the COVID crisis done to where are explorers, have you had a drop or has it actually increased as people have been stuck literally inside and just hungered for for the outdoors?
1: Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's been pretty crazy because um, a lot of the things that we rely on people being able to do um, all of a sudden, just no one was able to do them. So, I mean, it's been a pretty hectic six months um, with the fires and stuff as well because that obviously restricted a lot where people could go and what adventures they could go on, where they could camp. To start with, we kind of reacted by doing what everyone did and like publishing articles about, oh, here are all the things that you can do while you're still at home. Here's how to have an adventure in your backyard, that sort of thing, Um, which was popular for a couple of weeks and got a lot of clicks for a little while, but I think people got over virtual reality tours and stuff pretty quickly. But since things have started to kind of open up a little bit step by step, we've actually had like one of the busiest months um, on record in May. Actually, it's been pretty much the biggest viewership that we've had in a couple of years, I think, just because people are so excited to get back out there from the start of June and um, just so much planning going on.
0: If everyone's now, as restrictions, at least in Australia, are starting to gradually unwind, do you think that this onrush we're going to see as people, you know, dive into the ocean, get into the national parks, jump on their bike, will that continue? Do you think COVID-19 has taught people the importance of being outside? Or will people kind of revert to normal once normal is back?
1: Mm, It's a bit tricky. Hey, I mean there's definitely aspects of it that you would hope that people like carry on with their lifestyles for as long as possible. There's been reports of like bike sales have gone like through the roof. Um, I really hope that people continue to get outside as much as possible. I definitely think it's going to skyrocket in the next month or so. And then, I mean, given that the last six months or so A lot of outdoor activities have been off the cards because of bushfires and COVID. I think people will be really trying to make up for it. And hopefully even when um, international borders open up, hopefully Australians are just keen to stick around Australia and support like local communities and stuff that have really suffered over the last six months. And I mean, there's so many beautiful places to see in Australia. It's like impossible to actually get to all of them.
0: So with some restrictions coming to an end and your next, or first, outdoor adventure just around the corner, how to choose what to do? How to know where to go? Well, Amy let me know that the We Are Explorers website has now got a new page to help you do just that. And it's more than just a webpage, it's a hashtag. Explore Your Backyard is a state-by-state, territory-by-territory breakdown of all the natural wonders you can go and experience down under. It's an interactive map, and you can choose your adventure by difficulty or experience, the type of activity you're undertaking, and even the type of environment you want to undertake it in. It's super helpful. And for the record, this is not hidden sponsorship. Just me recommending a good website and wanting everyone to enjoy what this country has to offer. You never know. You might even lower your blood pressure while you're out there. And as Sir David Attenborough has said, no one will protect what they don't care about, and no-one will care about what they have never experienced. And protecting the environment is more important than ever before. In fact, if we, as mammals, want to keep this planet the wonderfully agreeable place it's been since the last glacial maximum ended about 20,000 years ago, we'd better start caring a whole lot more for the ecosystems on which we all rely. And this is not a green statement, I don't grow my hair long or wear tie-dye, it's a social and economic imperative as much as it is an environmental one. As mammals, we need to start recognising that we are part of this planet, not above it. That is the sound of a chainsaw. To be specific, it's the sound of a 352S Shindaiwa. How do I know? Well, I'm the one using it. Now don't get me wrong, I love trees and am of the firm belief we should be planting them, not cutting them down. But I live on forested acreage and the dead, dying and dangerous trees sometimes have to be dealt with. Wood is also what keeps my family warm during the winter. Chainsaws are incredible machines. A freshly sharpened and oiled chain goes through solid wood like butter and, as my mum has impressed upon me all too often, even quicker through your leg. Whenever I use my chainsaw, I can't help but feel a touch of shameful pride to be human. It can fell a tree in minutes that would have taken hours to cut down with an axe and hundreds of years if you just left the tree to its own devices. I have sawn through sixty years in ten seconds and left the logs weeping sap as huntsmen flee their broken home often snatched up mid-scurry by a currawong or kookaburra. Chainsaws are terrifying, the technical prowess of our species incarnate. The might of chainsaws along with their other combustion powered brethren such as earth moving machines, cars, power stations and industrial machinery have meant humans can now change the face of the planet more quickly and more extremely than ever before. In my era of science, humans have become what is known as a geophysical force, something that alters the face of the planet. One human can lift a small rock, seven billion of us can move mountains. Unfortunately, the euphemism has become literal. By some estimates, we shift 10 times more sediment every year than all natural geomorphic processes combined. I'm talking about all the rivers, tectonics, glaciers, the wind, the rain. We are currently losing sediment from the landscape at a rate that would fill the Grand Canyon in just 50 years. As the geologist Bruce Wilkinson, the man responsible for these figures, has said, we're headed for disaster. Collectively, this disaster is known as the Anthropocene. This is a word of increasing popularity, but to get the lowdown on exactly what the Anthropocene is and what it means for us and the planet, I talked to Professor Noel Castry, the Director of Research for the School of Environment, Education and Development at Manchester University and an Honorary Professorial Fellow at the University of Wollongong. Professor Castry has published multiple books, countless papers, has written for the conversation and regularly presents around the globe. It was a pleasure to speak to him all the way from the UK until my internet rather unprofessionally cut out and stopped our Zoom call.
2: Yeah, so the Anthropocene is a geoscience concept. It was coined in uh, 2000 by a Nobel Prize winning atmospheric chemist called Paul Crutzen and an American freshwater biologist called Eugene Sturmer. It's a geological term, so it describes a new epoch in the Earth's long history. The Earth is 4.5 billion years old, give or take. And geological epochs have natural causes, so the, Earth is, the Earth's environment has changed through natural processes over that 4.5 billion year period. Provocatively, what Krutzen and Sturmer proposed is that human activity is now having such a significant impact on the global environment, it is tipping the earth into a new geological epoch and they called it the Anthropocene, so the age scene of humans, Anthropo. And of course that is provocative uh, because what it's saying is that humans now rival the great forces of nature uh, that have dictated the the character of the earth's environment over billions of years and we've done it in a very short period of time, just over 200 years since the beginning of the industrial revolution. 20 years ago, it was a new word or a neologism. Uh, I think by about 2012, 2013, you would have called it a buzzword. So it was starting to be used in in some newspapers, in some current affairs periodicals, certainly in academia it was being used quite a bit. And now it's it's graduated to becoming something like a keyword. So it's become better known. You, You do see it used in all sorts of different arenas quite routinely. And as you've just said in your question to me, that slightly robbed it of some of the profundity, I think, uh, that Crutzen and Sturmer had intended. And that's a real shame because they very much wanted it to be a wake up call kind of concept or idea. A huge number of geoscientists are invested in providing evidence now that the Anthropocene has begun. Um, The evidence is pretty compelling. And it's, as I said before, it, it really is, Uh, an attempt to get us to think very, very carefully about the way we operate as human beings, particularly in advanced capitalist economies like the UK, Australia, and the United States.
0: Is the Anthropocene as a term, though, enough, do you think? As in, like, I heard on the radio recently that there's someone's proposing the Pyrocene as another potential era that we're heading into, the Age of Fire, which is especially kind of poignant in Australia, given what's just happened over um the last summer that we had do you think that these um these words alone will work in kind of changing the public discourse or does it need to be paired with something like COVID-19 to kind of force through that that type of change that you want to see
2: well some philosopher once said that you know you need you need good ideas when a crisis hits and I suppose um The Anthropocene is is, is a good idea in the sense that it's it's trying to warn us about something that's really profound and important. It's not a solution idea. It doesn't offer a solution or a way forward. And as you just said, David, there are other suggestions about the best way to characterize the human impact on the Earth right now. So the Pyrocene is one. Uh, A Marxist called Jason Moore in the United States coined the term the Capital Ocene, which is very ungainly. But is designed to capture the idea that actually we live in a world dominated by, cap- literally dominated by the capitalist economic system, and it reaches into every nook and cranny, not just of social life but the environmental world uh, too, or the ecological world too. So I think you need a kind of gallery or a panoply of ideas. Uh, some can be ideas that are about sounding alarm bells. Others are about well, how do we put the fire out and move forward in a more positive way? So I think you know it takes years to get these ideas into the culture into the language it takes lots of patient effort by many many thousands of people to change the discourse and i guess one hopes that you know when the discourse is sufficiently enriched with some of these ideas and when a crisis like the covid crisis hits and hopefully we won't have another one but who knows in the future we may do that that sort of triggers a social tipping point and politicians and many of our business leaders and certainly great many members of the public will say actually enough's enough, we have to change.
0: I also thought I would ask Noel, while I had him on the line, how the UK and England was going as the country tried to shake off the shackles of COVID-19.
2: Well, I think your population's been very good about observing social distancing. I think most countries have got fairly well-behaved citizens, at least in, well, actually no, globally. I think there's been a lot of compliance by um, ordinary people. But yeah, we are one of the worst-hit countries on the planet uh, per capita so far, and in terms of deaths and infections. The government is coming under a lot of pressure and has made quite a few mistakes. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how the government comes out of this because, of course, it wants to proceed with Brexit by the end of the year, which you know has already occurred legally, but in terms of the fine detail, hasn't even begun. Um, so how legitimate the government's going to be in terms of making big decisions in the future after this pandemic, I think is, is a bit of an open question. Mm. On the other hand, you know, and this is true in Australia, it seems that politicians are bulletproof these days. They can do <laughs> pretty much anything they want. They can make as many mistakes as they wish. And, um, you know, we shrug our shoulders, we, uh, we despair, but somehow they manage to soldier on without being kicked out of office. So mm. that seems to be the way of the world these days.
0: And you know, Null has a point. COVID-19 has created unprecedented political and policy challenges the world over. Has politics been up to the task? Well, I guess it depends on where you live. Some are claiming this pandemic may even herald a new world order as countries restructure their alliances, consciously or not, towards those nations that had a similar experience of the disease. And funnily enough, the coronavirus is a very natural phenomenon. I mean, this isn't the first, nor is it probably the last virus to give humanity a run for its money. So while it's clear the environment is important to us, most Aussies enjoy getting outdoors at least once in a while, it seems that nature plays a deeper and more complex role in our lives. And it's not just in keeping us fit, healthy or sleeping well, but in shaping our identity, our beliefs and our actions. In fact, it's nature that is at the heart of some of the biggest decisions we need to make as a country and a society. Hopefully, recognizing we're mammals might just help us in the process. Remember, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as on my website. Leaving a review always helps to get these things off the ground, so if you like what you're hearing, let me know. And as always, tell your friends about it. Next time, I continue my chat with Noel about what it's going to take to reconcile ourselves with our very unmammalian relationship with the environment.
2: Modern humans, particularly in Western countries, are more intimately connected to nature than ever before. It's just that we don't see it with our own eyes every day.
0: And as we continue our journey with Mother Nature, we get friendly with fish and rivers. What do carp, feminism and disgust have in common? Find out as we investigate the unique moments where nature, culture, science and emotion collide. My name is David Barnock-Clement. Till next time.